Good day, everyone, whatever time of the day it might be for you. Uh, we've heard already that we have people joining us from very different world regions. It's something that we really welcome and uh, uh, really sort of like one of the main advantages that we also perceive uh, most directly from about a virtual event. My name is Liam Patuzzi. I'm a policy analyst at uh, MPI Europe, the Migration Policy Institute Europe. And let me once again welcome you all very warmly to the first session of this conference. Uh, with the title, The COVID-19 Crisis, a make or break moment for social innovation for inclusion. So this is the overarching question that we will seek to address with my fellow panelists, which I will introduce in one minute. Before I introduce them, however, let me just provide a little bit of background and framing um, since we are kicking off the, the conference. Um, we wanted to start the conference with this session as it is the perfect conversation to help us set the stage for the next two days. It also helps us pick up from where past editions left off. As some of you know, previous conferences looked at the very bright ideas pioneered by social enterprises, um, tech startups, uh, grassroots uh, initiatives, governments, business-led uh, efforts on both sides of the Atlantic uh, to help newcomers settle in, especially after 2015-16, which was a bit of a watershed moment. Um, this wave of innovation held promise in so many ways that we've had the chance to examine, forging new partnerships, co-creating solutions with migrants to better reflect their experiences, um, applying uh, interdisciplinary knowledge to very complex challenges, plugging gaps in government services. Um, and yet our key questions throughout this experience were how to maintain momentum in this wave of social innovation and how to help it mature. Uh, so this gives me a good opportunity to briefly define social innovation, which is all the more important since the term has become a bit of a buzzword. I'm sure that many of you um, probably have that experience. Social innovation essentially describes the development of new products, services, or processes that meet a social need while also optimizing the use of resources and relationships available in a society. So on the one hand, there is the element of developing new solutions and approaches, but there is also an emphasis on using these solutions to rethink and change wider systems. Discussions in and around theory conferences in the, in the past few years made us realize that social innovation for inclusion remained fragile. Questions about effectiveness, but also sustainability, efficiency, and scalability would often remain unresolved. And the focus would sometimes be on the most compelling stories rather than on the greatest impact. More recently, as we have heard, the pandemic has placed enormous pressure on this young and evolving field. For example, a survey by the SHARE Network from late 2020 suggests that across the European Union, over a quarter of organizations involved in refugee and migrant inclusion suffered the closure of planned programs and activities, while many others had to cancel in-person services or even experienced loss of funding or faced a very volatile public opinion. And let's not forget, obviously, as has already been mentioned, that this all happened in a context of heightened needs and vulnerabilities, especially among our diverse communities. But innovation is often a byproduct of emergency. 
following the outbreak of COVID-19, we saw new community initiatives, public-private partnerships, dedicated hackathons. A few examples, uh, the campaign We Versus Virus, which was Germany's first crisis hackathon hosted by government and resulted in over 800 ideas. We've heard from Brian about the Welcome.us initiative or at the local level, the Torino, Torino City Love Campaign in Italy, a laboratory of innovation and solidarity during the pandemic. So where do we stand and what will prevail in this tension between disruption and evolution? And how can we turn one step back into two or even three steps forward and use this defining historical moment to make our societies and communities more inclusive? I'd like to welcome the speakers that will, together with me, try to address and answer these questions. We have uh, Kenny Kluwet, the Executive Director of Hashoka Hello Europe. Kenny, hi. Uh, where do we find you today? I'm, I'm based in Madrid, Spain, and it's a fairly sunny day today, so um, glad about Great. that. Thanks for joining us from Madrid, Kenny. We have Faru Saad. Uh, until very recently, she was the executive director of the Office of Global Michigan in the United States and is now at USAID as a director of public engagement. Hi, Farouz. Where are you joining us from? Yeah, good morning. I'm in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Fantastic. Thanks, Farouz. We have uh, joining us today Mustafa, Mustafa Alio, managing director of the international initiative RSEED. Uh, that stands for refugees seeking, refugees seeking Equal Access at the Table, and also the founder of Jumpstart Refugee Talent, based in Canada, I believe, Mustafa? Hi, good morning, everyone, from my end, and joining you today from Montreal, Canada. Hi to Montreal. Uh, <laughs> and last but not least, we have Kava, Kava Spartak, Managing Director of the Civil Society Organization ER in Berlin, Germany, that uh, supports Afghan refugees with a range of activities. Hello, Kava. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, pleased to be here. Hello. And I encourage you all to look at their impressive bios in the Whova app that is hosting the conference. So uh, have a look whenever you get a chance. A couple of housekeeping notes before we start delving into the discussion. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org. I repeat, events at migrationpolicy.org. We will have a Q&A session later in this session. Um, there will not be a voice Q&A, so please type any questions you might have into the Q&A box, either in Zoom or in the Whova app. Um, also, just to signal that we will be recording this event, so please keep in mind that your questions and the chat may be recorded and will also be uh, view viewable uh, for other participants. Uh, so without further ado, um, I would like to start with you, Kenny, um, if you allow. Uh, you're the leader of Ashoka Hello Europe, um, so you have had a privileged overview over the challenges faced by social innovators and social entrepreneurs during the pandemic, and also how they have responded and adapted to the challenges at hand. Um, can I ask you, what, what were the main challenges that you have observed among your social entrepreneurs, the Hellopreneurs, and how has Hello Europe sought to help them? 
Yeah, thank you so much, Liam, and uh, it's such a privilege to be here. Um, so really quickly, just to, to put us in context, Hello Europe emerges from Ashoka, which is the largest uh, network of social entrepreneurs. And um, the, the idea or our aim is sort of to become the collective voice of innovating, empowering citizen sector solutions in the field of migration. Um, why to show and turn migration from a divisive issue to a system of solutions and change makers. There's a whole history on how we got to that, but that's what we're, we're kind of seeing emerge. And we do that sort of in three ways, it's just to set a framework uh, scaling. We identify and spread proven impactful citizen solutions to the regions most in need. We've, we've launched, um, I think it's 14 accelerators across Europe, and now we're, we're, we're launching in Latin America. Um, we also work on policy. So these kind of things, you know, bridging the gap between social entrepreneurs, um, sort of on the forefront of the work and policymakers wanting to, to establish sort of the processes. Um, and also we work really hard on narrative, which is contributing to a narrative change from migrants being seen as passive subjects of compassion to them being seen as what they are, right? Powerful change makers eager to contribute. Um, and to do this is absolutely central for that migrants and their stories be at the center of this conversation. So first of all, it's a privilege for me uh, to just see kind of the configuration of who's speaking at this conference compared to the kind of conferences we used to see a few years ago in, in Europe and kudos to MPI and to a lot of other people that have been working on this. I think we're finally heading in a pretty good direction. Um, but, but going to, to the question specifically, what are the opportunities or what are the challenges? You know, first thing, we work with social entrepreneurs um, that could be defined as people who are just optimistic and see hope and opportunities where others see impossibilities. Not in a frivolous right way, but really seeing, okay, here's a chance. Um, and so during the pandemic, what we did is we brought together our, our community of Hellopreneurs. There's about a hundred in Europe. We didn't bring together the hundred, but kind of called them and said, what, what's going on? What do you guys need? You know, what's, what are the big, um, big uh, needs, urgent needs? You know, what are you seeing? What, what do you think we should be thinking about? And, and sort of two big categories came out of that. Um, first, we saw there were short, medium and long-term issues. Right, and we all kind of know this, but they sort of stopped us and said, look, there's short-term issues, urgent, people need funding. And that in some cases for some organizations that was kind of dealt with and other organizations and policy, everything was looking at that, right? But they said, they also said, this is the chance to look at the medium and long-term and maybe get some stuff done in the process, you know, and, and really think in, in that long-term. So we said, okay, let's gather some of those medium long-term ideas. What are you seeing? What are the opportunities kind of what's emerging? So um, I'll, I'll drop a link in here in a second that has the two reports that we worked on that come from the social entrepreneurs. But basically we found that there were a number of things that they identified that were kind of the long-term things. First of all, the, and maybe more the short medium term was reinventing the mass accom accommodation approach. Our mass accommodation approach doesn't work um, at, at any angle, but particularly, and, and we know this now, right? Dur during the pandemic, it was horrendous to kind of see what was happening with, with mass accommodation. So we use that to, to try to bring some of the social entrepreneurs that were innovating both on how to structure accommodation, how to connect newcomers or, or people on the move with local people rather than building kind of separate housing um, kind of functions, et cetera, and also really taking serious psychosocial support, both to refugees or for refugees, but also from and engaging them. So not you know, oh, you're a newcomer, let me connect you with a local psychologist to kind of help you, but rather, how do we, how do we build communities? How do we empower people to kind of uh, connect with each other? Um, and we have, so a number of things, that was one of the big ones. Uh, a second thing we kind of identified was what's gonna happen during the recovery, 
right? Now we're, we're at the cusp of, not the cusp of recovery, but cusp of funding for recovery from Europe at least. Um, and so a year ago almost, we started planning out and our fellow David Lubell, who um, leads Welcoming International, thinking what are the what are the things cities can do so in the recovery inclusion is a key aspect and they created liat just kind of a tool um i think a, a bunch of us a few people here are involved with that a tool to kind of suggest the city what are steps to recovery with inclusion and how do you check that what are the metrics um another thing was uh, which i think was just addressed in the in the previous session i heard the the back end of it is uh, how do we expand legal and labor migration you, you know we, we've seen that migrants are absolutely essential to the economy. We, we've always known this, it comes up again and again, but it was even clear um, in, the, in the pandemic, how do, we, how do we provide some new mechanisms um, so that there's legal citizenship and, and pathways and stuff like that. I think that's still a battle um, or a process that's ongoing depending on which country and it's a battle or a process or something positive, but that's another thing. And a lot of social entrepreneurs had solutions. Uh, here, I'll just mention a couple other things. One was migrant entrepreneurship which I would argue is probably the new sector in Europe that now we kind of have a better picture of who are the key players there. There was a lot of organizations that emerged initially. We know this, right? When the last sort of wave of migration arrived in Europe, entrepreneurship went up something like 30%, 40% in many countries. Um, entrepreneurs bring entrepreneurship. I mean, sorry, uh, migrants bring entrepreneurship. What intentionally or not, it happens. You know, environments change. So now we're seeing this opportunity to kind of Regulate is probably not the right word, but really coordinate across Europe because entrepreneurship requires a European ecosystem, not just countries um, and different legal mechanisms so that refugees can move around, you know, to, to, to build ventures in other places where they're needed. Um, last thing I'll say, and because I know we do want to be short here, but is change making is the driver for the new uh, migration paradigm. Of course, Ashoka is going to say change making, right? But we really, this narrative piece and the piece of who's actually doing the work and where are these proximate leaders became even more evident, right? We, we saw during the, the pandemic, the people creating change, the people built, uh, serving their communities, the people thinking long-term were migrants or they were uh, people with migrant backgrounds. So often the children of migrants or, or growing up in migrant communities, they're on the ground seeing the need. Um, in many cases, organizations couldn't even make it to certain places and innovation emerged from there. So the urgency of finding proximate leaders as being absolutely essential for all funders and, and organizations to look at. Um, you know, just to put it a different way, the most brilliant and effective solutions are always going to come from the communities where the problems exist. We know this, but our structures of supporting and building policy and getting funding to places are not based on that assumption. So we need, we need to do some, some readjustment here. Uh, Ashoka is doing some readjustment because we discovered we're not selecting these people, we're not finding them, we're not connecting because our networks have become more elite or because we're looking different directions. So kind of analyzing what we're doing differently and also shoring up um, these initiatives. So, you know, just recently we, uh, and this isn't published yet, but we're, we mapped out change makers from migration across Europe, who are some of the key change makers with a migrant background. Often it's not first generation migrants because often first generation, there's a huge need to make money or to survive, um, or, or you don't have a legal pathway to kind of be public with your social entrepreneurship but people with a migrant background, which often aren't considered migrants, like second generation migrants or people that are you know, from the community who wouldn't wanna be called migrants, by the way, in, in many cases, and they're not, right? They're, they're nationals. How do we connect with them and really recognize uh, on the one hand, the challenges they have, but also the key competences that are unique. You know, There's things that they have that they're doing better than everyone else, 
in addition to the resiliency um, that they have. So I think that's the big focus that we need to take now. I think people are saying this in different ways, but we really need to think through um, how do we restructure some of our sector to really reach that, to connect them, to lift them up, to give access, uh, not to build little special programs for them and put them to the side, you know, but to really give uh, a seat at the table. Yeah, I'm sure we're going to hear more of that. Uh, not just a seat at the table, we need to build new tables. The tables we have don't work. You know, so that's one of the big things that we're seeing. And I'll, I'll stop there. I know that was a bit long, but I'm really excited to hear from others as well. Thank you so much, Kenny, for this very rich uh, initial intervention. And uh, thanks so much for, for basically pitching all the sessions that we will have in, in the next two days of the conference. That's much appreciated. <laughs> I think you touched on, on so many vital topics. So thanks a lot. And I think, yeah, this, this topic indeed of like the, the underlying structures and I think that that really um warrants a, an interesting conversation let's see if we can pick it up later again um and also i just wanted to to point our participants because you mentioned welcoming international and them being so active in in inclusive thinking about inclusive recovery that we will also have a plenary session tomorrow where christina christina pope from welcoming international uh, will be joining us so um if you are interested in hearing more about that you're welcome to join that session tomorrow uh the for the opening session so um i'd like to turn to firuz um hi firuz um thanks again for joining and um i know you have worked and 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 this is why also we were so impressed with your profile you have worked on on refugee and migrant inclusion at several different levels of uh, of government either in the united states and most recently, I mentioned it before, uh, at the state level, you were the director of uh, the Office for uh, Global Michigan before moving to USAID. And, and this was an excellent example of a public initiative aim, aiming to, to innovate in the area of inclusion. Um, for instance, you know, some of the key words that uh, Kenny has already mentioned, migrant and refugee entrepreneurship and um, minimizing barriers to services. Um, so I, I was just really curious to to hear from that experience. Um, how did the pandemic change your priorities at the office of for Global Michigan, and um, what challenges did you face? And and especially in your work with the community, um, how did you manage to keep uh, uh, the proverbial ear on the ground and and keep the communication going uh, with the communities um, in Michigan? Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, good morning. Uh, thank you again for inviting me to speak here. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's an, a great transition, I think, from Kenny's conversation and, you know, your kind of how do we change the underlying structures? Because I think often when we think of that, we think of government. <clears throat> um, and so innovation in government is going to mean something completely different than innovation in business and, and in the nonprofit world, because, you know, there's not often the ability to be as nimble um, and respond to needs as quickly. That being said, during a pandemic, um, you know, there was a lot that needed to be done fairly quickly. Um, so first of all, the Office of Global Michigan. Um, so I was appointed by the governor, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, um, and the Office of Global Michigan is the office that is in charge of um, immigrant, refugee, new American integration and inclusion within the state of Michigan. And what that includes is working across state governments to ensure that policies and programs are 
adequately um, meeting the needs of these communities in the programs that they are trying to implement. Um, furthermore, it also meant um, building the partnerships with the direct service organizations like the refugee resettlement agencies, but also the community-based organizations that are oftentimes you know, the direct service providers and our conduit into um, the, you know, the refugees and, and immigrants and their families themselves. Um, and then it um, kind of also playing off of a little bit what Kenny talked about is the narrative. Um, and then we kind of saw um, that we had a role to play in that narrative as well. And trying to not necessarily change the narrative around immigrants and refugees, but um, I think add to the narrative in a way that works for um, all Michiganders, you know, so that we can um, really build a welcoming Michigan. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, during the pandemic, um, the first thing that really became, um, I think, obvious that we needed to do was um, find a way to communicate directly to these individuals um, because it's a public health crisis, right? There was information constantly coming at us and coming from the state of Michigan to the public. Um, and uh, I mean, very simply, um, we needed to make sure that information could reach them in a way that they could understand. Um, so again, innovation and, and government means something a little differently. And for us during the pandemic, it meant being able to um, quickly um, respond to the needs of the community by making sure that information was simply translated in the languages that they you know, needed it to be translated in. And so um, my office um, worked with state government leaders to identify funding um, to be able to translate um, press releases and the executive orders that the um, governor was putting out, I mean, if not at a daily, certainly at a weekly basis, you know, everything related to the mandated quarantine, to who was the, um, you know, who were our frontliners, so on and so forth. And so um, that was a lot harder than you might imagine. First, what we did is we kind of took um, a landscape of who were the most recent um, refugee arrivals to Michigan and what languages did they speak? And then what were the other kind of common, most common languages amongst our, you know, immigrant and refugee communities. And so based off of that, we ended up translating um, everything related to the pandemic and um, quarantine and mandatory shutdown at the time into six languages, and then working directly with our partners um, to ensure that they were disseminating that information amongst you know, their uh, clients and their communities. Um, and then, as you might imagine, <clears throat> a lot of times, you know, policy and these executive orders are very dense, even for us who speak English perfectly, to fully follow and understand. And so we quickly realized after about a month or so that you know, we were putting out this information um, and maybe it wasn't landing quite as it needed to with those that needed to receive it um, because 
you know, the first page or the first, you know, couple pages of an executive order is right is is the legalese, uh, you know, in the background. And a lot of times that's not as pertinent, you know, when you're when you're working in a pandemic. And so um, we then kind of worked with the governor's office and you know, the, our department, our Michigan Department of Health and Human Services to um, figure out how we can kind of um, really kind of take the most pertinent information out of these executive orders and press releases um, and use that for, you know, to translate that and then get it out to the public. Um, and the other reason for that is because um, oftentimes we would have to translate the information after it was already public because this was sensitive information that needed to go out immediately. So there was a delay in getting it to, you know, community members. And so that was kind of another reason to um, really innovate on our behalves in terms of, you know, how we turn that information around. Um, <clears throat> so that was just kind of some of the stuff that we did during the pandemic and, and really kind of working with our partners on the ground um, to be able to kind of get information to them quickly. Um, and then as we kind of went further into the pandemic, it was um, eventually kind of making sure that that two-way communication was open between us um, and community leaders and those partner organizations to ensure that we were understand what were the most pressing needs within these communities. Um, and, you know, working with our partner agencies and our, um, you know, and our colleagues across state government to adjust as quickly as we could. Um, so we held a lot of virtual town hall forums, you know, we held a lot of um, round tables um, and, and just kind of one-on-ones to be able to make sure we were able to get that. Also within the Office of Global Michigan, um, the governor, um, previous actually governors had created and then under this, under Governor Whitmer, it was placed within the Office of Global Michigan, three um, uh, commissions um, that represented, um, you know, three immigrant groups or ethnic groups across the state of Michigan. So there was a Hispanic Latino commission there was um, a Commission on Middle Eastern American Affairs, and then a Michigan Asian Pacific American Affairs Commission. So we worked very closely with the commissions and the commission chairs and their staff at the time to also make sure that we were, um, you know, keeping abreast of like what are the most pressing needs um, of, of their communities. And every community has different needs. Um, and so fast forward to this last year when there was finally vaccine and, you know, we're trying to get that to people as, as fast as possible, the governor had created a COVID um, vaccine task force. And within that task force, we also created parallel working groups um, to those three commissions that I mentioned. And then we also, and then we also made one separately for um, a most recent refugee arrival. So it was an African immigrant working group. Um, to do exactly that, to understand, you know, how can we get vaccines to these communities, making sure that we were addressing language barriers, cultural barriers, and that we were getting them through a mechanism that they felt comfortable and safe through, so their churches and mosques and community organizations. Thank you so much, Farouz. Uh Again, very rich intervention, and yeah, I think some of some of the key points that you made. I guess when you when you mentioned the legalese, uh, thought indeed it's 
as you pointed out, not just a, a, a matter of mechanically uh, translating information and, 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 and that's it, but it's very much an issue of trust. It's a matter of, uh, as you mentioned, having these mechanisms in place, systematic channels that, uh, that can foster that trust. And uh, yeah, curious also to hear how they um, were able to keep that trust going in a, in a situation of, yeah, maybe more virtual formats, town halls, et cetera, that you mentioned. Um, Let's see if, if we can uh, pick that up later, but um, I'll turn to uh, our third speaker, uh, Mustafa, uh, looking at you. Hi, Mustafa. Um, Mustafa, you're a social entrepreneur yourself and you launched several initiatives to, for instance, to promote labor market integration. I mentioned Jumpstart Refugee Talent, which you launched a few years ago. And more recently, um, the other initiative, the RSEAT, uh, to support meaningful participation of refugees in political decision-making. Um, one of the issues that we uh, discussed very often in previous conferences, and it's already come up several times in these um, first you know, um, 45 minutes of the conferences, what um, the key role of refugees and migrants in promoting social innovation for inclusion. Um, and at the same time, um, migrant or refugee-led initiatives often as many other initiatives in these ecosystems remaining uh, quite fragile, for instance, due to difficulties accessing funding, but also other challenges. Um, so looking back at 2020 and 2021, I wanted to ask you, what have we learned about the role of uh, refugee-led social innovation and about its resilience in you know, all that happened over these past couple of years? Thank you, Liam, and, and, and glad to be here. And um, I, I think in terms of what the world uh, has learned, um, it is unfortunate that it took a pandemic uh, for the world to realize the role of refugee-led organizations on the ground. Um, the idea, um, the role of refugee-led organization did not basically begin or was apparent when the pandemic hit. But rather, I think what makes it a little bit different, because this is the first time where it was kind of a bit of a global issue. So everyone was kind of taking a look at global responses in different places. And that's what kind of educates a lot of policies, governments and others around the role of people on the ground. But before that, with every refugee movement that happened, with every crisis that happened in different regions, always refugees were the first to respond. Um, always refugees were handling the, uh, the massive work on the ground. Um, just to give you an example from something where I came from in a way is like Syria, when, when the revolution started in Syria in 2011 or end of 2011, the international community really intervened to start helping people in 2015. So from 2011 to 2015, it was really kind of the refugees, and especially for the first couple of years, it was the refugees who themselves were organizing and all of that. The same thing, in, you know, in, in, in Africa, the same things in, in Asia Pacific. But I think because those were kind of a bit of silos and just kind of a specific to one uh, over the other, that's why it's been always lost um, in the, um, you know, in the view of the public. I think the, the, the other point uh, where, um, and again, like a kind of pandemic, it's just the whole society from NGOs to policymakers when literally were paralyzed on the ground, it was the refugees who are responding to the needs of other refugees. And actually, um, interesting enough in the XCOM that's happening next week, uh, uh, executive committee meeting for UNCR, 
we've seen a statement from the high commissioner and this statement it was already basically produced it was the first time um, i think to uh, my knowledge and also to a knowledge of uh, someone who is uh, one of the most prominent uh, refugee researchers uh, globally, James Milner um, in, in Canada, where that never been mentioned, where in a statement it says in partnership with people of concern. This is the first time in a statement coming from the High Commissioner to mention the people of concern as a partner, not only as a beneficiaries. Um, in that sense, I think there were a few comments also I want to bring and, and thank you for Frey Ruz and, and Kenny on, on, on those points. It, it, it just also, uh, I want to really uh, um, encourage everyone to dig a little bit deeper when we talk about migrants. And then usually, I know this is kind of something like when I start working in the European context right now with our seed, kind of I'm, I'm learning more about it the fact that refugees and migrants are combined more in there. Like it's just kind of a strong uh, emphasis on the fact that all of them are migrants. I mean, here in Canada and North America, it's kind of a little bit still we have the immigrants versus refugees. But still, I think when we create programming, it is important to separate refugees from migrants or refugees from immigrants because those needs are different. The situation, circumstances are different. And the reason why I'm saying this, because when we create programming or envision ideas or create support, um, even if, if on the outside, when I kind of make it, and, and this is kind of a separate conversation in terms of, you know, why we should focus on and say refugees, even though many people don't like to identify as refugees, but I think it's not their fault because just kind of the, the stereotype around refugees that always being uh, portrayed as either kind of an uneducated a risk or kind of, uh, um, and, and that's kind of a way, um, and I, I myself fall into that trap. I, I, you know, I was never wanted to say I'm a refugee, but then kind of getting into the work a bit more than I found something a little bit different. So I think in the programming, we need to kind of uh, dig a little bit deeper on, on that. Um, also, Kenny mentioned around kind of the entrepreneurship. Um, this is also a very important one. Yes, basically a second generation of refugees are more likely to be an entrepreneurs. The first generation, uh, they kind of try to focus on survival, but not all of them. And that's kind of the, I mean, many of those in the first generation, they actually wanted to focus on survival jobs just because at one point they couldn't find the proper support that out there. And especially we, I've, I've seen, I work with a lot of kind of investors or uh, um, impact driven investors or a social purpose investors in that sense, but it's still what they say they want to support refugee led startups or kind of expandable ideas. But when it comes to evaluation and kind of, you know, assessing those kind of uh, program, um, their mindset is always stays based on what they know and not basically what the refugee circumstances um, kind of face. So also this kind of um, point that was important. Um, some of also kind of the innovation, we're talking about kind of an, an innovation around labor market and that kind of been mentioned, but also in terms of the role of refugee-led organizations, often today the programming around refugees, uh, uh, look at them completely from, or most of it, look at them as kind of a one paint, uh, one side. And even in the pandemic, by the way, 2021, it was also kind of another uh, a confirmation that all refugees are not basically the same when it comes to uh, skills and background and all that. So we cannot really paint all of them as a beneficiary, nor I'm saying that we sh that should take away from those who are most vulnerable, but because definitely we want to help them. But today the system is built in a way that you go to a refugee in any place, and he goes to them, they're not the most vulnerable. The system basically tells them like, okay, listen, we're not gonna help you right now. You go ahead, wait for about 10 years, become the most vulnerable and come back, you might get access to the support that we have. Um, I think um, one of the uh, uh, 
innovative and, and something that I'm really proud of uh, to, to be part of here in Canada was the Economic Mobility Pathways for Refugees, which is the first ever program to allow refugees to come to states, um, to Canada, Australia, and the UK right now under the economic stream. And this is kind of the first ever program where basically looked at refugees in different perspectives. Um, basically looked at those who are not the most vulnerable yet and just trying to save them from becoming the most vulnerable uh, at one point in life. Um, the last point I'm, I'm gonna mention and just kind of a focus on, Social innovation, um, one of the main kind of, you know, or, or something that you hear so many times when it comes to social innovation, and especially now maybe after the pandemic and the pandemic and now before and after, is that we should not recreate the wheel. Um, I think a lot of people get so much uh, focused on that we should not duplicate the effort, we should not recreate the wheel. But then what about if the wheel is actually broken? Today, the system is completely, I mean, that I don't like you look at refugee response system, um, it is a broken system. And focusing so much on saying, I'm not gonna recreate the wheel, basically you're just saying that this broken wheel is okay to keep up, to keep up with. So just wanna kind of um, hopefully uh, encourage people to think a little bit deeper and, and to think sometimes that it is okay to recreate the wheel because the wheel is broken, especially kind of with the focus on refugees, to turning refugees into a solution, into part of the solution, not only part of the beneficiary uh, or kind of the, uh, the, the problem. Um, I think I, I, that there was kind of a few points I want to mention more, but definitely I'm going to leave it here. I would be more than happy to hear um, questions coming forward after from the, from the audience or from you. Thank you so much, Mustafa. I'm sure this will trigger several questions and uh... I uh, really liked your points. Um, I, I noted down a couple. I, I thought it was really interesting what you mentioned about refugee entrepreneurship and even where systems or investors or you know um, accelerators exist. It's always a matter of looking what are the rules of the game and who defines them. So um, do we set the rules that we expect to be uh, you know, do do the investors do it uh, in a way that they expect to be fulfilled, or is there genuine co-creation? Is there genuine bottom-up definition of what both the challenge and the solutions would be? So, thanks a lot for that, and I think, um, yeah, I think it will be interesting to discuss what of that wheel we can maybe keep, uh, and what of that wheel we should recreate. So, thanks a lot for ending on that note. Um, I'm now looking at um, Kava. Hi, Kava. Um, as I mentioned, you're the director of Berlin-based um, Afghan Association ER, and you're also a member of Berlin State's uh, Advisory Board for Migration and Integration. So you have uh, both a, a, a good overview and an in-depth knowledge of, of one of the urban ecosystems of social innovation for inclusion that has been most vibrant in recent years. It came up at several previous conferences, that of Berlin. So I wanted to ask you, given that this is such a microcosm that stands in many ways for what we think of when we think of social innovation for refugee and migrant inclusion, um, in your view, how has this ecosystem in Berlin um, adapted over the past, let's say, 18 months of pandemic? And do you think that it will be um, durably transformed as a result? Um, I know you're in civil society, so. I think that would be my main focus, but feel free, of course, to take a broader view as well. Yes, thanks for having me here, Liam, and uh, also thanks uh, to, to everyone else uh, to, for, for these introductory words, which were very interesting. 
um, on my behalf um, to coming to Berlin. I mean, Berlin's ecosystem. Uh, I, I have to I have to say some few words about the ecosystem in Berlin regarding um, uh, the welcome culture and also with regards to to refugees and migrants. I mean. Um, over the past two decades, at least, uh, the, 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 there has been a, um, an amazing development in, within within Berlin's civil society, but also within Ber the Berlin Senate with regards to the so-called uh, integration of, of migrants and of refugees. So we have certain strong structures. Also, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a board member of, of, uh, of an advisory board. Uh, which is also a, a very important tool for the for the for the Berlin state in order to to stay within the exchange and and hear the voices of of the unheard always and and um, and, and taking their voices into account with regards to, to policy making. So it is also very humane and very refugee friendly, which 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 I could witness in the last couple of years. And uh, one of the one of the main uh, things that that Berlin is actually emphasizing always is inclusion and participation so so in this regard i have to admit that compared to other cities or other capitals or even within germany berlin has a has a really like outstanding position in this regard now coming from the point of view of an of an um, afghan uh, organization or an organization with afghan roots i have to say that um, uh, the berlin senate of of integration and labor uh, and, and and social uh, uh, issues, uh, they have been quite uh, friendly towards Afghan refugees, or let's say they 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 have they have implemented certain policies that 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 were different from uh, from other European cities or even other other German federal states. As you can imagine, until recently, uh, Afghan Afghan uh, newcomers, Afghan asylum seekers, were like were treated like second class Af second class asylum seekers throughout all of Europe, even even throughout all of the world. So uh, it was um, it was a, a tough a tough pill to swallow working in this sector because we, we had to fight on all sorts of of um, of, of of areas. Um, this has changed recently within the last two months, as you can imagine. Still, um, it also emphasizes how we came into being. I mean, we're not we're not social entrepreneurs. We are we just uh, we just founded an, an association, and uh, it's like a charity organization. I think in the in the Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, regions, you know this as as charity organizations. So we are a charity organization, and um, we have to we 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 have to go through 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 everything that you can imagine. We have to do the, the work, uh, the the work, the, the the grassroots work, but also uh, working on on a, on a, on an advisory board uh, level and do advocacy work. So coming to 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 your questions, um, um, in the beginning uh, of the pandemic, I think the the Berlin Senate and all of the the resources they didn't they, they, they didn't have a clue what to do. With this whole situation so when we asked the, the berlin senate in, in march 2020 uh, so how are you going to 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 deal with this pandemic are you going to shut down your offices or not they were like you have to bear with us we will we will we will, we will talk to you next week so we decided on our own to shut down and to to switch everything into into digital formats um, so, so, so this is something that we witnessed in the beginning and and, and then also there was actually no, uh, we didn't have a guideline of what to do and, and, and how to react. So we gathered other migrant organizations, other, other charitable organizations, and we, 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 had, we had several video video calls in order to, to, to help each other, in order to exchange ideas and so on and so forth. 
Um, so at the end, for instance, we we uh, uh, our organization we 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 started translating um, all of the, the the most important information um, from from the federal side or from the state senate side into into Persian and into uh, into Farsi and Dari in, in order to reach the majority of the Afghan uh, newcomers in Germany. Um, so we were the, we were the only uh, uh, the only organization uh, offering such such translation or such. And information. On the other hand, we also started recording podcasts in order to 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 uh, to, to provide people with 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 how to deal with stress and with the, with the quarantine and so on and so forth. And at the same time, uh, we were we were actually pointing the finger at what 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 the state senate was doing. So we were actually telling them, you need to you need to 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 speak with us. You need to speak with civil society in order to. To uh, uh, to understand how the newcomers actually um, receive information, or or how 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 they're actually um, how they're actually thinking right now uh, with regards to the pandemic. Do they have doubts? Do they um, and so on and so forth. So and at the same time, we also had to resist racism. Uh, as you can imagine, um, the media was uh, was uh, was uh, was providing us with 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 news that I don't know. Um, Certain groups of people they 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 were not abiding to law and they they were they were having celebrations, weddings, and 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 and, and all sorts of parties. So racism became even increased at at at, um, uh, at that time. Even so, we were even dealing with 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 these kind of issues. Um, but at the end, we were um, we 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 just hope that the 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 Senate is reacting is is. Is, um, is is cooperating and collaborating with us even more in this regard. And um, yeah, after 18 months, I have to say, um, we didn't work together as much as we, we, we should have. Um, we were working, uh, um, um, yeah, on a, on a parallel side uh, uh, at the same time. Uh, but now I have the feeling that they are, they are changing certain things. And um, at least with regards to vaccination, they're starting collaborating with, with migrant organizations, even with mosques and, and certain other areas. So um, I think the ecosystem is there, but um, with regards to the pandemic, uh, we need to evaluate this together on a state level and civil society level so that uh, for, for, for future pandemics uh, or, or for future crises, um, the Berlin State Senate has to work more uh, uh, collaboratively with, with civil society organizations. Thanks a lot, Kava, also for, yeah, for stressing this aspect, uh, which I think will come up uh, very soon again, of sort of like, um, yeah, distilling lessons and indeed thinking more in the medium and long-term, looking looking back and trying to to build for, um, for the way ahead. Um, I also wanted to, um, yeah, uh, point to everyone that uh, Kava will also be sharing more details about the activities of YAR in one of the breakout sessions that will follow this session. So if you're interested in hearing more about uh, activities uh, that YAR, with which YAR engages with refugees and other and other audiences, uh, you're welcome to join that session this afternoon. And I also I like to address it to everyone if you, if you would like to say a couple of words about it. And precisely the point of, um, you know, how to manage this delicate transition from what we've seen now in terms of, uh, to some extent, the wheel has been reinvented. We heard it uh, now from Mustafa. We also heard it, for instance, from, from Kava and from Fairuz in terms of all these initiatives that came into being in a very short time. And to some extent, for instance, also, um, you know, consolidated the relationship between government and civil society in some contexts, et cetera. 
Um, but how do we now manage that delicate transition to, uh, you know, making this a consolidated reality that actually, uh, you know, creates permanent or like in any case durable channels for communities to, you know, uh, to bring their expertise, to bring their approaches and solutions into, well, into the mainstream ideally. Yeah? First, uh, you know, testing something, scaling it up, but uh, eventually also rethinking services for uh, for us all. Yeah, that's, your guess is as good as mine. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I think we actually do have some, that there's some things, but perhaps for me, the one of the most inspiring quotes on this or stories is Dr. Martin Luther King in the United States um, when, when they were in the midst of the civil rights movement, et cetera, which very, is very much related to this as far as narrative. Um, he, he talked about the need to change hearts and structures. This is obviously the long-term game is to change hearts so that, you know, to, to seek what he, he called beloved community, right? That this community, you know, he talks about the dream speech, et cetera. It's this beloved community where we're connected and, and we're, we're valuing each other, et cetera. He says, in the meanwhile, I need to change structure so that people can't kill me and get away with it, you know? And I think we're, we're at a stage where both things need to change, you know, and, and, and I'd love to hear from others who are actually more affected by this, like uh, Kavowitz is sharing, you know, this racism, the different things that are emerging that are actually extremely dangerous and urgent, uh, things that we need to deal with at a structural level as well as others. But I feel as we, um, the goal, is this beloved community, right? For what does that look like for Europe? What does that look like in these settings where our culture automatically, if we look in a room, we're talking about migration, it's all white people. In the case of Europe, for example, then we, we probably wanna ask some questions. You know, there may be migrants in the room that, that come from, you know, the different communities, but, but we probably should ask like, why, why are just we here? That's one of the things we've been trying to do a lot with Hello Europe is to say, okay, let's, Let's ensure that in every policy conversation on migration, we talk about social innovation and there's a change maker from a migrant background present. Not as a testimony, but as an actual participant, right? Because often I've been in conferences and, and, and I'm a white uh, American European, you, you know, I, I don't count as a, as a refugee or as a migrant in, in many senses because I haven't gone through some of these experiences. But often we'll have these conferences where our culture is, let's listen to testimonies of a few refugees, let's cry a little bit, then we move them out of the room and we make a decision. We need to change that. That culture, that needs to be completely unacceptable at, at every level. How do you get there? I think part of it is telling these stories and, and bringing it out. Like for Ashoka, one of the things we need to do is lift up, um, what we do is lift up leaders' examples, right? And, and their initiatives. What we need to find to, to ensure we're lifting up um, examples also from refugee and migrant communities. But as we're changing the heart, so to speak, or the narrative, I think there are some structures that we can put in place, right? There's funding structures that we can change. We just helped uh, push through some uh, a number of um, pilot projects and stuff from a European level, so from a government level, but also private projects where funding goes directly to migrant-led organizations or to organizations that are actually have migrants representing their own voices, um, both migrants and refugees in this case. It's a very similar reality in, in the sense of narrative. So we, we can get a lot of those things happening where they become regular um, and that also turns into culture. So th those, are, those are just a few ideas. The, the last thing um, on this, at least for organizations like Ashoka. So Ashoka basically, the essence of what we do is identify and support social entrepreneurs for a lifetime, right? Um, which is a pretty, pretty helpful support for these individuals. 
we need to figure out how to bring uh, or how to provide access, let's say, to the resources that we have to individuals from some of these communities um, and not get comfortable with the, the easier people to select, right? So to speak, that are from our networks or whatever. And that's requiring us, we're in a process right now, going back to our structures and our criteria and saying, what's the hidden criteria here? What do we, what are we expecting of people that we're not hearing from people from different communities? Like, and I'll give you a dumb example, right? But it's like, we expect people when we send them an email, what their idea is to send us a long articulate email of what it is. If you're reaching out to leaders in migrant communities that are getting stuff done, email is not the right way. <laughs> you know, they're on the street with WhatsApp, maybe with, you know, a phone call, you need to take tea. You need... So even like small things like this, that we can implement our organizations and train our leaders to kind of have their ears and eyes open to different solutions. Those are things that we're seeing are just fundamental. Uh, talk about change the wheel, right? <laughs> like transforming the wheel and some of those things, hiring different kinds of people, putting different leaders in place that aren't. Uh, that actually have experience from there, et cetera. But I'll, I'll stop with that. But those are just some things that we're seeing emerge. Thanks a lot, Kenny. I think, yeah, this brings us back to the point of, yeah, the rules of the game. And uh, um, yeah, we, 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 form, we tried to formulate it in a way like um, trying to move from social innovation for inclusion to inclusive social innovation um, for, for everyone. And uh, um, so we'll have actually one session also tomorrow looking at uh, looking at how that's that's best supported. Uh, but of course, if if any of you wants to jump in and complement this, uh, I'd be happy to to hear from you. Um, I can just also mention a, a couple points around that. I think um, I agree with Kenny on in terms of kind of changing the hearts um, and I think the mindset as well. And it's kind of a long term game. Um, at the same time, I just, you know, and changing the heart, um, I hope everyone doesn't kind of understand it in a way that only uh, by playing on emotions. Um, this is not an emotion game. This is a practicality game. Um, a lot of people often when we talk about refugee participation, um, you know, I think it ends at like even with our seats right now. So with our seats, the, the, the mission is that we work with 20 governments because we created something in Canada, Canada being the first ever state in history to institutionalize refugee participation. So there was kind of a refugee advisor network. There's a work with the uh, Global Affairs Canada and Immigration Canada. And that's why, for example, you've seen there was an announcement for the first time ever from states of $40 million refugee-led organization. This was mentioned for the first time ever in the international development coming from states that basically came from Canada, the kind of the Canada that would never be on delegation on refugee issue without having a refugee delegation. Canada for the third time, this XCOM would have a refugee delegate. So the idea of our seat kind of right now, kind of go and then try to work with 20 other countries. And now we're very close actually, um, uh, uh, interesting enough in Colombia, Germany and, and the US. I think when we go and then we work with those countries to create a mechanism in each of those states, a lot of people kind of, you know, refugee participation is right, and this is a moral thing. It was in the Global Compact in paragraph 34. But actually beyond that, what we try to tell everyone, the participation is not the goal. Improving the global refugee system is the goal. Participation is a tool. And then I need to utilize that tool in the best way possible to utilize that, you know, close to a few millions refugees who can be part of that solution. So really kind of we need to change the mindset in the beginning that participation is a practical tool that you're just bringing another actor to the table because basically what exists right now don't work. The other thing also when I talk about practicality, 
having a different messaging to different people, it's okay to talk to, to talk to people who are, let's say, racist or that want to basically accept refugees and have a conversation with them. What's often being forgot, a lot of people when they think about refugees, but I don't want refugees to come in. They kind of think about it as like they are economic burden. Um, I mean, rarely you would see someone going and just raising hands and say, I'm racist, I don't want refugees. Often people have a different excuses to it in a way, in a sense, like, you know, they're economic burden, we want to bring them, we support them, but all of that. And I think that's what we need to have a, a proper conversation. A lot of people forget, for example, that exclusion, it is an investment exactly like the inclusion. So a lot of people think it's like, you know, if I don't want refugees in my place, I just like, that's it, done, I'm not going to invest anything. It was a recent, actually, there was a recent report came from Nero and Manus in Australia. The Australian government paid close to $600 million to contain about a couple hundred refugees. Imagine that $600 million were invested in the inclusion refugees. So what would be the outcome? And this is kind of sometimes I try to bring it to kind of like, this is an investment strategy. Let's just talk about strategy. And let's say it's like, what are you going to invest in? What are you going to take off? The last point I'm going to kind of basically bring it today. A lot of people think of refugees as a refugee crisis. We're talking about 90, 90 million, about two to 3% of the population. Many estimate right now, we're adding the climate change. We're adding so many other issues because they're not part of the definition of the, of the refugee convention. By 2050, we will have a 1.2 billion refugees. Those kind of the estimates. So if people think about refugees as a crisis, I want to exclude them and not have them to come and all of that. Think again in 30 years from now, when there is a 1.2 billion, basically migrants, refugees on the space. So, okay, let's talk about strategy. How do you want to invest? And where do you want to invest? And do you think, you know, what's the best option for it? So also kind of changing hearts, not only by playing on emotions, because yes, a lot of people would like that kind of a narrative. And, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not dis, dis, discounting sometimes I mean, the whole Syrian, like the, the, the support, the global support for the Syrian cause was because of one picture of a kid on the shores in that sense. Is it, so I'm not, I'm not discrediting this, but at the same time, we need to talk to those who are the other side, who have kind of a practical issue. And again, participation. So basically moving from the if to the how, it's just a practical play. It's not really an emotional or only kind of a, a human right play um, in that sense. Thanks so much, Mustafa. Also for underlining the the magnitude, and the, and the cost and the investment of uh, dimension of of this discussion, and and how important it is also in 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 practical terms in terms of long sightedness and strategy. Um, so, Pyrus, I say I, I see the raised hand. I'm not sure whether it was uh, on purpose this time. Okay, yes, great. Yes. <laughs> I apologize. Please feel free to jump in. No, that's that's great. Yeah. No, thank you. And um, again, I, I think most of us comments were actually perfect transition for um, what I wanted to add here. So um, kind of taking it from the emotional to the practical and what's the strategy here. So, you know, at the Office of Global Michigan, yeah, we were part of government, but the state legislature really holds the purse strings, you know, and so um, you know, obviously, while we weren't, we're not an advocacy or a lobbying organization, um, I talked earlier about how we saw um, a little bit of our role is to think about how can we build upon the narrative about immigrants and refugees to be able to influence policy in different ways, but also influence the influencers, right? So in terms of strategy and kind of, you know, a, a long-term strategy and, and being practically minded is thinking about who 
influences the influencers, you know, and those that are making decisions around budget. And so um, we actually, you know, even prior to my um, being with the Office of Global Michigan had, um, the office had built a lot of relationships with um, uh, business organizations, um, chambers of commerce, um, ethnic chambers of commerce, and, you know, just the traditional and, and the more broadly speaking ones, workforce development organizations, so on and so forth, and kind of talking about specifically the economic impact and contribution of immigrants and refugees. Not that that's all they bring. Obviously, we all understand, and within my office, we certainly understood the human rights component and all the other value that, you know, um, bringing, being welcoming, what it brings to your state and cities. But there is also a very real economic component. Um, and um, there's the, in, within the US, there's something called the New American Economy, um, which is an organization that focuses on um, identifying that research and that data and providing it to cities and states um, in meaningful ways to give us the talking points we need to go and have those kind of economic drivers conversation. So, you know, within the state of Michigan, um, you know, we have talent shortages, you know, we, we worry about long-term population growth. Um, the number one complaint you hear from corporations and maybe the lack of interest in, in moving, you know, companies and, and whatnot into Michigan is because of talent. Um, and so we, if you look at the numbers, 60% of um, immigrants and refugees coming into the U.S. come with um, a degree or, you know, some sort of um, secondary degree or higher education. You know, this, and this is talent, frankly, oftentimes that within their cities and states, they are um, unable to work in their fields because of a number of structural barriers. Um, so we really, um, one of the things we did is we kind of, we focused on that. So we helped, you know, these business organizations and these business leaders and the, org, you know, the, the people that worked around them and influenced them understand a lot of like the economics and the economic impacts of these communities really showed the data showed the charts so on and so forth about how state of michigan really re is gonna rely on this you know in terms of population growth and therefore economic and talent growth um and then furthermore we also use that data to build a program um, that um, was at one point a direct service um, program that worked with these high-skilled immigrants and refugees to help kind of better place them in the workforce. Um, and now it's kind of pivoted into a um, policy office that works across state government to look at the structures and policies in place that are, are making it difficult for them to live, work, and play in Michigan. Um, and so we found it to be very effective because, um, you know, there's, there's the hearts and the emotional conversation, but as Mustafa pointed out, you're only going to bring along so many people through that. And then, you know, that may not always necessarily influence the actual funding structures and, you know, the other policy structures. Um, and so, 
you need to have a data-driven conversation. And I used to often say, lucky for us, the data and the facts are on our side. Um, and there was real things that we could point to and, and really show that there's a bottom line here for the state, for your cities, for your companies, so on and so forth. And that was very, very helpful. And you know, I will say that most recently, we just conducted a census, you know, across the US, um, some preliminary kind of numbers and data and analysis is starting to come out. And about a month or two ago, we saw that within the state of Michigan, the only population growth that we saw um, was amongst, you know, immigrant and, and refugee communities, frankly. Um, and so that right there even further contributes to our kind of narrative and why it's so important that we support this work and that we put, you know, funding and policy and programs behind it. Thank you so much, Farouz, for this very concrete example of how evidence and an evidence-driven strategy is important also to guide policy across government and to identify barriers. So thanks a lot. Um, I do have a I do have a follow-up question for all of you. Uh, maybe Kava, I'll look at you first, but anyone who would like to jump in um, can do so. So we, we've heard a lot about the challenges that, you know, the ecosystem from civil society to social entrepreneurs to government have faced. Um, and we've heard some of about some of the um, short-term uh, adaptation strategies that have been uh, used uh, to cope with this, as well as about the need for long-term structures to, to enable this to, to be sustained. But um, what, what is, in your perspective, what is the way that, uh, you know, interventions and services uh, and operations for inclusion uh, might, you know, change durably because of this crisis and now recovery? So um, do you think that we will see the effects of this in, in 10 years? Um, and, and if so, yeah, any, any example that you might have, that would be really interesting to hear. I will jump in uh, since you asked me first. Um, we have realized this uh, throughout the last 18 months that um, um, this whole switch from, from, from analog uh, counseling, uh, lecturing and so on and so forth, and even, even certain um, discussion groups, we can, we can actually switch this into, into the, uh, the digital form. So um, it was successful. And the only reason it was successful from, from our part was as, uh, as everyone else uh, rightfully mentioned beforehand is the, the idea of inclusion and participation. I mean, we cannot, we cannot only talk about this as, as, many, uh, um, uh, as many stakeholders that we work together with, all, all of us have always been emphasizing this, but we have to, we have to do this in practice. So uh, for instance, in our organization, what, what, what has changed in the last five years is that for the last two years, well, we have uh, we have asked for the for the I mean not only we have asked for the ideas and um, and innovativeness of of our of our participants of the newcomers but we actually included them within the team so actually right now our team consists of more Afghans or or people with Afghan background than before so but the majority of us are now are now um, Afghan newcomers within our team so and also our projects and our programs are being led and run by them. 
So this is some sort of participation that is not only written on paper, and we're not hiring them as volunteers, but on as, as professionals who are working and, and paying taxes and being taken seriously, even in team meetings and so on and so forth. This is one important issue, and that's why also our digital uh, um, our, our, our digital uh, um, uh, um, um, offers are, are quite successful. And we, what we have realized is that uh, with with um, uh, to, to 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 emphasize that the, the long term success of of, of these uh, digital platforms is that we realize that we're not only reaching people within the Berlin area when, when, when we invited people to our offices and to our to our to our programs, but now we reach people in, in Germany and Europe and even we reach people in Afghanistan and Iran and Pakistan. So um, what we have achieved through this digitalization is that actually we, we can still uh, offer um, our programs to the to the to the Afghans uh, living in Berlin and, and the Berlin area, but now we can also have discussions and also uh, provide support and counseling from people all over the world uh, from uh, with an African background. So this is this was I have to admit uh, it was it was a it was a blessing in, in this regard what we have what we have seen from the developments uh, from the pandemic. Thank you. So really interesting. Also the the possibility to tap into transnational networks that. Uh, uh, are often yeah quite strong especially among diverse communities so that that's that's really interesting as a as a pointer as a resource i just wanted to check if uh, the other panelists also uh, would like to jump in on this um if not i mean i, I also wanted to say thank you for uh, the person who asked this question this also came in through the question and answers through huva so thanks a lot for for raising this question about alternative models of uh, integration and inclusion looking forward um, I wanted to pick up on one point that Mustafa raised, namely the one about duplication, which which was very much a, um, an issue that was discussed uh, when thinking about these developments over the past five years. You know, if we think about uh, yeah tech solutions, but also any other solution, and this kind of like um, issue that yeah we would have a very lively um, uh, scene of, of smaller, small-scale solutions that are in, in specific places and work very well in their context, but uh, um, they, they are sometimes side by side and uh, and very little or like, yeah, some limitations in the channels and corridors that should lead these uh, to scale. Um, do you do you see this risk uh, at the moment with the dynamism that, that, that we've observed and and also the adaptation uh, that that maybe different organizations just do this, you know, using their resources um, uh, individually without may maybe optimizing the learning that's going on. Sorry, long question, but I hope it came across. No, that that's fine. Um, if if I wanted to to break it down in a way, I I strongly believe, and and even that's based on my experience and and working with government all of that. Most of the duplication that organizations do are happening because of the funders, not because of the organization. Um, today, kind of the way the, the, the funding process being set in a place or even kind of an organization as an NGO. I mean, at the end, NGOs and non-for-profits, and especially when working with the, with, with the, with the, with the refugee uh, um, uh, space, it just kind of becomes as an industry. And this industry basically rely on funding. And the funding only being um, provided by um, governments and let's say kind of, you know, a UN agencies and all of that. And often this funding is very kind of in a way very specific. So for example, you would see government that I want to 
uh, dedicate fund on GBV with kind of uh, women, right? And then with the other kind of a UN, I want uh, a food response system and all of that. And at the same time, they just kind of make it a bit more competitive and then everyone go ahead and apply and just trying to show it a little bit differently. So we become a system that reliant on seeing what out there as a funding and start writing grant based on this funding. And that somehow leads to a many ways of duplication. Meanwhile, we don't see much around um, kind of, you know, organizations bringing the need and say, I want funding for this. So can you fund me? Like, I, I, I don't that and, and this is kind of a, so much of struggle that refugee-led organization in particular face because refugee-led organization they're always so busy in terms of kind of responding to people on the ground so they don't have this department of grant makers and someone who would think strategically how to write the best proposals to go and go ahead and do it they're just often being on the ground and they're often being not funded based on the excuse they don't have a governance, they don't have a structure and all of that, but somehow when big NGOs get the money, they go and they partner with refugee led organizations to implement their programs um, in, in, in that sense. So I think many of that duplication really happened because of the idea of the funding setup. Maybe one of the solutions for this to kind of avoid some of the duplication, and by the way, again, like I'm just gonna re-mentioning that, it's okay sometimes to reinvent the wheel. Like, and I think funders should be be a bit more open-minded to look at different solutions and then to be a, a risk takers to invest in let's say kind of organizations that they don't have a much of history or maybe to reshift their fund like i'm not saying funders because a lot of sometimes like funders come to me and say i remember one day in geneva someone yelled at me it was like there are a hundred a thousand refugee organizations how are you going to fund all of them it's like no, no it's okay for you to be picky but it's okay to restructure the funding in a way. So let's say, for example, 25% will go into governance and structure for this organization. The rest would go to your, to your basically support. So a lot of that kind of way, if we're able to reshift that narrative for funders and some kind of innovators, if they want to call themselves innovators, to say, you know, I don't have a mandate. Come to me with ideas and let's just kind of, you know, see what's going on and then to try with the mindset that it could fail in the startup world in the investment world by the way eight out of ten startups fail and yet investors do go ahead and invest why this is different to refugee-led organizations on the ground why every refugee organization funders need to guarantee it's like a 200 percent success for them to go ahead and fund it and i think those change of mindsets from both ends and also by the way on refugee-led organization they should realize that working on structure and governance, this is something that needs to be done. And it's okay sometimes to ask a portion of that funding to go and then be a bit more daring into it. Um, I was basically, the, the last one I'm gonna mention, Jumpstart was lucky because I am one of the privileged refugees. And this is something I always remind myself on it. I'm one of the very privileged refugees that speak the language that I was in the country for a long time, that I had a bit of saving to spend on organization so I should be, be able to survive and, and go forward and advocate for others. But also, um, so as much as we need to do some work on refugees, but we often forget that there is also as much work we need to need to be done on the funders, the governments and the innovators. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Mustafa. Um, so I see, I look at the time and I see that unfortunately we are approaching the end of the session. We have to very soon wrap it up. Um, 
well, first of all, I wanted to thank all of you for this really, uh, really inspiring and enriching conversation. Uh, I hope that the participants found it to be the case too. Um, I'm just looking at the Q&A here. We already addressed some of the questions. Um, I think uh, Mustafa already posted some information about the Canadian program that he mentioned in the chat. So if you're interested in, in, in looking that up, uh, please do. There is also a question, Mustafa, about specifically about uh, Jumpstart. I don't think we can go um, very much into the jumps, the details of the Jumpstart project right now, but uh, I would encourage uh, the attendees to also link up with Mustafa and to ask more details about uh, this project, uh, which is essentially about, um, yeah, sort of like labor market integration and linking refugees with employers, but correct me, Mustafa, if this is wrong. Uh, we, we have one final question, and I would ask, I would just like to ask maybe one of you if you are willing uh, to, um, you know, comment to it with uh, one minute, two minutes, very briefly. Uh, we have one question about uh, how to use the social innovation uh, for inclusion of refugees uh, to address also the needs of refugees hosted in the Global South, who are, of course, um, often more vulnerable than their counterparts hosted in the Western world. I can just say the, the conference as it developed um, this was this was mostly as a as a matter of sort of like focusing on on contexts that are more comparable. But of course, this is a very pertinent question, and I find it really interesting also to see how can we transfer lessons from contexts that uh, have some differences, but also share some uh, share some some challenges and some characteristics. So I just wanted to check who of you would like to uh, to react to that one. Um, for just really very brief comments. Uh, Kava, I see you. I, I, I've also seen Kenny, so maybe I can, I can briefly say something. Sorry, Kenny, if I may. Um, what, what we can do from, from, from our part in the, in the Global North is, is, um, is to raise the voice of those people. And the voice of those people has always been, they have the basic needs and they can survive in the neighboring countries. However, the racist and the structural racism in the neighboring countries, that, that this has to stop. Either we're talking about the Latin American continent, the African continent, or maybe the Asian continent. As for, 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 the, for the Afghan community, the racism that has been going on in Pakistan and Iran towards Afghan refugees, this has to stop. I don't think that people will, will, will need to move towards Europe or, or other countries. They, 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 they can survive in Iran and Pakistan, but structural racism, this has to stop in, in the majority of those countries. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kava, for, for saying that as well and for calling it uh, what it is. That I'll just come from a different perspective very quickly. What we're seeing is most countries in the global south are doing it better, <laughs> not, not necessarily because they have more structures and more money, but because there's more of an entrepreneurial culture. At least this is our experience with Latin America, where a hello experience has emerged. And we worked really hard so that it wasn't Europe telling Latin America what to do partly because Europe is the region that receives the least percentage of migrants in the world and complains the most, right? So we're not, we're not the best at, at dealing with migrants. We're just not, um, we, we built so much paperwork and different stuff. And so as we've been working with Latin America, we've launched something called Hello World that, that I'm, I'm co-leading with uh, Latin American or, or across all America, but especially Latin America. We're, there's an energy there. That there's a desire to move it. Like there's, they work together much more quickly. Europeans um, and North Americans are so individualistic. It's so hard for us to actually work together. Where there's more communal cultures, I think uh, 
I think we're, we should be learning from them in many ways um, and, and collaborating, not as much saying, how do we bring what we're doing over there, but kind of like, how do we learn from each other? And I think we may have a really cool opportunity there. Um, given the crisis and the seriousness of some of these crises, not, not that migration is a crisis, or, um, but for refugees and for people that have to migrate out of necessity, obviously it's a huge personal and, and country crisis, but in the midst of all of that, there's some learnings that are pretty astounding. So I'd say, let's look towards the global stuff. Let's see how we can help with funding, but not control. Because if we try to do that, you know, we'll, we'll replicate a lot of the, um, the paternalistic approaches and all kinds of stuff that we do here that, are, that have done so much damage and the racism that we've um, helped to export and, and, and increase in some cases. Thank you so much. Thanks, Fairuz, Kenny, Mustafa, and Kava. Thank you. Uh, for for these great contributions and for uh, for being such lively interlocutors. 